First John 3, 1 3, verses 4 through 10. This is our seventh week into 17 weeks. Um, this is the last time I'll be teaching for a bit because the, <laughs> yeah, sure, I put everyone to sleep. Um, because the wedding and the honeymoon are happening soon, uh, Hori's going to teach, huh? Sure. Hori's going to teach next, and then I think Mike might teach twice. You can talk to him if you want. Maybe you can teach another one too, but I think he's going to teach twice. So I was going to be on the schedule for another one, but I think Mike will go twice. So it's week seven, um, and the title to the lesson is Why Did the Son of God Invade Planet Earth? <clears throat> and I apologize for my voice. I'm a little uh, dealing with some allergies. But so why did the Son of God invade planet Earth? And the main idea of the lesson is that Jesus came to redeem and renew sinners by paying the penalty of sin and defeating the devil. So he came to redeem and renew sinners in two ways, by paying the penalty of sin, so sin, the big enemy sin, let's get that done, and then defeating the devil, let's get that done too. And that's how, what he did when he came first, and of course, when he comes again, which we won't talk about as much today, but when he comes again, that will be completed, even though it's already sort of happened in a way. It'll just play out. Um, so let's read the text. First John 3, 4 through 10 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever, practice, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he, was, he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. And there's some great quotes in the intro of this book I wanted to read for you. The first one comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a sermon that he was preaching during World War II. He said, When the dark hours, when dark hours, and when the darkest hour comes over us, then we want to hear the voice of Jesus Christ calling in our ear, Victory is won! Death is swallowed up in victory. Take comfort. And may God grant that then we will be able to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It is in this faith that we want to live 
and die. So in our darkest hours, we must remember not just what we're looking forward to in the forever kingdom, but that Jesus is victorious already. He has won. Uh, Another quote from John Stott, super famous single preacher. He said, If Christ appeared first to take away our sins and to destroy the devil's work, and if when he appears a second time, we shall see him, and in consequence, we shall be like him, how can we possibly go on living in sin? That's a great point. To do so would be to deny the purpose of both of his appearings. So if Christ first comes to get rid of sin and to destroy the devil's work, and his second coming, which he has told us, is going to be us seeing him face to face and being like him, why in between would we choose to not be like him? It doesn't make any sense. And we're going to see that a lot today. A lot of this really does come down to just logic. Um, It's the same as when Jesus taught about the wide road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads leads to God. It's not, we can get wrapped up in the emotions of it, which is good, but it really does just come down to Jesus is making a logical statement about supernatural things. He's saying, this is the way it is. I know that you can't see that, but I will teach you this is the way it is. And now with the Holy Spirit indwelled, we can actually see it happening in our world. Um, It's not empirical, but it is there. And in the spiritual way of things, it is logical. So John has been addressing four different kind of groups throughout the letter. He's been addressing fully assured Christians. He's been addressing Christians struggling. struggle with assurance. Another group I'll have you guess, and then four non sorry, not my writing. Non-Christians. What do you think this third group is? So he's been addressing Christians who are fully assured, I'm good to go, my faith in God is good, it's great, my faith in Christ, I believe in Christ and what he did, I'm following him. People who are like, I believe, I have some doubts, it's kind of hard, it's kind of hard to put it into practice sometimes, but I do believe and I I will die, I will die for Jesus, but trying to get it to go is hard. Then there's a third group, and then there's the fourth that's just like, I don't care, I hate God, hated him for a long time, don't want to participate at all, whatever. What do you think this third group is? Christians struggling with sin. Christians struggling with sin? Carnal Christians. Carnal Christians, okay. In the book, those are both good, I think, that give us a little fifth group here. And here they're talking about non-Christians. What kind of non-Christians would these be, though, do you think? Oh, non-Christians. You've got fully assured Christians, Christians who are struggling with assurance, non-Christians who are something, moral? and then non-Christians. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Some moral, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, every once in a while you see 
Christians, uh, non non believers do stuff that the church or the believers do, and you go, wow. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, it kind of changes us Christians going, wow. I, we should have been the first ones there, right? Sure. And how do you think those non Christians feel about their faith? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they think they're if they're like doing stuff, and other Christians are like, wow, you must be a Christian. Right. I, I think yeah. they feel, you know, I. Well, I would say they feel... Um, How is their assurance? Well, it's think? all tied up in the words. Sure. But how do, you think, how do you think they think of their assurance, non-Christians? I don't think it's a, a factor. Okay. I was going to say they, they aren't sure. I mean, they're assuming they're okay. that, the, that the works are going to get them there, but if you really push them... Sure. They would say, well, I'm not sure, but based on my works, I'll get, you know, based on what I've done. Yeah. When God sees me, St. Peter lets me in, my, my, my works are going to outdo my... Sure, yeah. So, maybe unsure. I'm going to go further. I think that they've been tricked. I really do. I think that they are falsely assured... They have a false assurance, and they are non-Christians. These are people that the devil, these are some of his, some of what makes him the most happy of what he's been working on, assuring people who do not believe in Jesus that they are secure and have a relationship with Jesus. Falsely assured non-Christians. And that's kind of what they were talking about. This is kind of who he's zeroing in on in this passage today. He's talking to everybody, but he's kind of zeroing in for a second on like, where are, like, like in his letter, if he was standing there, he'd be like, where are you? I know you're out there. You know, where are the non-Christians who think that they're saved and they're not? And his goal is to shock them and wake them up to their spiritual status to, so that they'll know where do I fall on this list? And he does that by being very direct. And that's why this section is so great because it's so direct and repetitive. Um, what you guys will say, a lot of people that I've known that fall in that camp where, you know, while I'm a member of the Methodist church. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, if you'd ask them. Yeah. And that's how they're sure. That's how they say that. I'm a member. Which is an assurance that is useless right so it's false false yeah Yeah. it's not good it's false we deal with truth and lies and where do we get our assurance we get it from either truth or we get it from lies and these people are getting it from lies and everybody believes the lie so it seems like the truth and it's not (laughs) they're falsely assured um as we touched on in our class and uh the how to study the bible class Two great questions to ask yourself when reading the Bible are, what does this text teach me about God? And what does this text teach me about man, as in fallen man and humanity? And John, in the next eight verses, he addresses both of those questions. He does them in reverse order by showing with man what the problem is and then showing with God what the solution is. So when you want to read four through five again, Everyone who practices, everyone who makes you practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
sin is lawless. You know that he appears to take away sins. In him there is no sin. So what's the problem that verse 4 presents? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We're thinking about why Jesus came to and why Jesus invaded the earth. What's the problem? Sin. Sure. And what about sin and humans? I would say another thing is we... Like, answering the question, right? What does this teach me about fallen man? They like sin. Okay. And we don't, like... So, going further, we practice it, right? Practice, okay. Yeah. All of, you know, it's not like... I like to get a steak from time to time. It's like we eat all the time. Like, like we do it all the time. And it's not a habit. I won't even say it's a habit. It's a practice. That's different than a habit. I want to talk about more about that later if we have time. But this is something that we get better at doing. We do it more and more to get better at it, to sustain it. Um, and he's saying that everyone who does that, right? So if you practice sin, what's that? Why is that a problem? What's the problem with practicing sin? What does the verse say? It's lawlessness. Mm-hmm. I even looked it up online. I looked up sin on the internet. And thankfully, the definition is still really good. The definition for sin on the internet is... And because I say the internet because it doesn't go straight to Webster's anymore. It's some internet definition, you know, from Google. And it says, an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. That's nice. Someday you might look it up and not get that definition anymore. It'd be like making a mistake, hurting your friend. This is like a transgression against divine law. Uh, so when we sin, we go against God's law. Well, Even more so. Look at it. The law defines what sin is. Exactly. And Paul taught us that so well. Um, so if you didn't and, have that, you wouldn't know what sin is. Yeah, and, if, and according to Paul, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't even want to sin. <laughs> it was the law that brought it out of us. God exposed the sin within us by showing us the law, and we were like, I want to break that. Because uh, it seems to me there's some place there was no sin before the law. Yeah. And that's, that's our problem. That's why God or Jesus had to invade the earth because there's been a problem from the beginning that deep down we hate God's law. We hate it. We don't want to do it. Um, and that's what he's saying here. We make a practice of going against God. And if we make a practice of it, that means that we hate doing what he wants, which means we love to break the law, which means we are outlaws against God. Um, how many stories do we have in our culture where the outlaws, like the cool hero of the story? We are outlaws. Um, this is the opposite, right, of what we learned in Matthew 5, when he starts off with the Beatitudes, blessed is this person, blessed is that person. That's a deep joy of the inner disposition. This is a deep um, habitual, settled disposition of a heart and a life that is against God. So it's the opposite. The makes sin seem good for the immediate Absolutely. moment. 
And he does it again and again and again and again. And you're like a little rabbit picking up pellets the rest of your life. And you don't do anything good. Well, think of the garden. Yeah. Right. Well, then I was thinking, you know, there wasn't much of a law there in the garden, right? Just don't eat of this tree. All the things you can do, just don't eat of that tree. Like, in fact, there was the only one. This one thing you could, the only one thing you didn't have to do, you couldn't even keep that. It wasn't a list. Yeah, it was one. One thing. Just, one yeah, law. You could look at it. You could touch it. You could do anything. You just don't eat of the fruit. And we're not even sure what happened in heaven. Like, I'm, I'm not, we're not sure. We just know that the devil was like, I'm better than God. And then he was gone. Right. We don't even know if there was a law. He was just there and God allowed him to think his own thoughts. And he was just like, there might have, he just might have just been like, I'm just better. It's like, that's what sin is. It comes from this place of like total rebellion. Um, uh, well, the devil, from what I gather, his original sin was, hey, move over, God, and let me help, let pride. Me help you run things. <laughs> yeah, which seems to be, as far as, I've gone, as far as I've learned so far, the root of most of our sins, which is pride. Um, so we're looking at the problem, and now we're kind of thinking of, like, how does Christ fix the problem and I guess I'll just say like what was John the Baptist saying famous for saying about Jesus like what's his famous quote about Jesus the kingdom of God is at hand sure yeah but when he sees Jesus what does he say the old lamb of God yeah who takes away sin boom so if the problem is sin how do we fix it He's going to come and he's going to deal with it. Awesome story. And so God is reminding us Christians and the churches at the time who were being tempted by the world, the Gnostics, that Jesus set out to do this mission and he was victorious. So they're being, their church is being split and messed with and tinkered with. And he's like, what are you doing? Jesus won. Like, why are you splitting somewhere else when you're part of the, the victorious team? It's not, you're not thinking correctly. Um, you look at Jesus coming to, you sort of look at it as a twofold mission. Yes. His first part of the mission was behold the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. Mm -hmm. Israel would have crowned him. We'd probably roll right into the millennium. Yeah. But they didn't. So then he goes to the other, you know. I agree. It's cool because you gotta if you're like a deist during this time period, you gotta give some credit to Jesus Christ. He is he's so different than other gods. Um, he stands out in respect to what his mission was, who he is, his being, um, and his success. <laughs> like, he claims success, and his mission was not to dominate. His mission wasn't to, let me give you a list and then you'll figure it out. His mission was, like, I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to rescue you. This is a rescue mission. It's a beautiful thing. Um, does anyone know 2 Corinthians 5.21? You should 
it's great. It kind of encapsulates this whole like, it's so great. Because if you think of this, like we, I think being in this, we kind of lose the meaning of what's really going on. But if we saw like a movie about this, we'd probably be reinvigorated. Like this is the movie and here's the mission. And then Second Corinthians 5.21 like is like the motto of the mission <laughs> like this is what's going to happen does anybody know it or got it yeah for our sakes he made himself to be sin who knew no sin no that's you said first corinthians second corinthians five twenty one. so that in him we may become the righteousness of god so sweet so there's this amazing rescue mission and you could say like if we were to ever remember the rescue this incredible rescue mission that happened if we were to look at each other, you know, the way Marines say Semper Fi or whatever, just be, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful rescue. Um, I've heard people talk about the, the rescue as kind of, I heard somebody use an illustration once that was like, when you're lost, you're like a person struggling in the water and then when jesus saves you it's like somebody throwing you a life like a life preserver or something like that and when they did this illustration they said well that's not what it's really like that's not a good enough illustration and they said what it's really like is like you're on the bottom of the ocean and jesus is diving down to the bottom of the ocean and saving your life and i'm going to go one further today that's not a good enough illustration he is diving to the bottom of the ocean handing you his line you're being pulled up and he's dying down there and then he miraculously comes back to life and then comes up to the surface talks to you says how he did it and says i can make it so you never drown again ever so we're put in this situation where it's like if we're ever on the bottom of the ocean, what are we going to choose to not drown? Or are we going to choose to drown when we know how to not drown? That's going to lead us into these next few verses. If you know specifically how to live and to not die, you're not going to choose to die. You know what I mean? Especially when you spent time with somebody who chose or showed you how to live, how to avoid death. Uh, verse 6, somebody want to read verse 6? on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Nice. And in the ESV, it uses that word abide again. That word abide we've been talking about. Mike talked about it last week. What is the word? Do we have it? What is the word in Greek? Abide. Do we remember? It's so, so, so key to this epistle. Do you remember what it was? I think we've talked about it maybe three times. Meno. Yeah. Meno. He's got it. Meadow, what does it mean? Remain with me. Yeah, remain. Abide, obviously. But the reason we look at these words is because they have multiple meanings, because it contains all of those meanings in one. Um, you've got remain. I was looking at some other definitions. It says to continue to be present, you know, to stay there even when it's hard. Um, that's something that I'm sure plenty of you have faced uh, that's been a, a really blessing in marriage. Maybe your wife has just been like, thanks for staying. I, I know I'm like kind of crazy right now. Thanks for staying or whatever it is. Like to continue to be present. Obviously that's not what we face with Jesus. Also to be held, to be kept continually. 
to never ever be let go. Meno, that's a good word. So, but that's key to what's coming up. Going back to our illustration, like we were saying, if we befriend this diver, this diver who came down and saved us, which is already enough for us to give, us a, give him a life debt, which is something that happens in other cultures, but we don't do that here. We could, somebody could save our life and we'd be like, okay, cool, see ya, yeah, we're just doing your good for humanity, no big deal, and never talk to the guy again. Whereas in other cultures, they might be like, I owe you my life. If you, wouldn't, if you hadn't saved me, I wouldn't be alive. So I, I logically, I owe you my life. There's no other solution. You saved me. Um, but this is like what we talked about. You sit down with that diver. He loves you. He tells you the story and how, you're, how you fit into his great story and how from the beginning of time he wanted to come here and save you and teach you how to not drown, teach you how to not sink to the bottom of the ocean. If you've befriended that diver, do you really think you would sink to the bottom of the ocean and just drown? I think all of us would agree, no, you wouldn't do that ever again because you know how to not do that. Um, before, you didn't know how to get out of that. Um, and it's further than that. It's whatever the illustration is, in this case, the diver, you're on the bottom of the ocean. He has the ability to dive down. There's something different about him. He never sunk down and got stuck. He has the ability to go back and forth. And we see that in these verses as Jesus has no sin in him. And because he has no sin, if we abide in him, if we stay with him, then we're not going to be sinful either. It's just that simple. It's kind of like that rule that I've been hearing about as I get closer to marriage. The rule of, uh, uh, there's a Jewish term for it, but the rule that don't be in a room with a woman alone that's not your wife. I can't remember what that rule is, but it's like, why that rule? You know, why do that rule? Because it, then it's impossible to ever do, you know, the wrong thing because you just can't do it because she's, it's not possible to do it. It's not logically, you know, and that's how it is here. It's like, if you abide in Christ, you're not going to keep being not like him. It's just not possible. Um, I know none of us have, another example, none of us have ever seen perfect parents, right? We've never seen perfect parents in our lives, even though many of us have probably had good ones. Um, but if a child, do, if a child had perfect parents, how do you think they would turn out? Bad. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, look at Adam and Eve. They were perfect. Well, you know, Are we uh, not going to see Adam and Eve in the kingdom one day? I don't know. <laughs> All right, somebody less pessimistic. Uh, if we had uh, perfect parents. Well, you know, when you ask that question, I think of uh, what I, well, how I believe that. I mean perfect. The, the, the I'm not. I mean perfect. Yes. The, the end yes. time. Okay. <laughs> what I believe, there's going to be people live a thousand years with the millennium with Christ that they had. That Christ is going to let the Satan out again, and there's going to be people that live through that millennium. Sure. That's going to reject Christ. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't even make sense to me. How that could, you know, how that you could, but that's just the way man is. That's a good so, point. So, so if you had perfect parents, you know, how the kids going to turn out? Well, you know, based on what I believe about prophecy. Exactly. I want to say it's a, it's still some of a, you know. 
a crapshoot, as they say, you know, mm -hmm. because because ultimately that decision to follow Christ is that child's choice. Sure. Not the parents. Sure. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Okay. More or less, you can say they got the potential to be perfect, but a well way. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that doesn't mean we can't guide them, or yeah. as people say, put a little salt in their feet. There's yeah. There you go, sir. I mean, they're still born a lost, rebellious sure. sinner. Sure. So sure. That's perfect. No, that's a perfect. Exactly. So it has to go one step further. God has to be within you. That has to be what happens, right? That's that's great. Like we just broke down a very logical thing. If somebody asks, like, why? If somebody asks you in your life, like, why can't I be a Christian and not believe in this weird Holy Spirit thing? It's like because like, people with the most perfect parents in the world would still sin. It would still happen. It's we're just prone to do it. There has to be a change from the inside out. And there's many things about that, but the big thing is there has to be a direct connection with me and God. I have to abide in him, and he has to abide in me, and he's provided that way. <clears throat> um, good. Well, I mean, it's important to, you were talking about the practice, you know, the practice. this isn't talking about the fact that um, you'll never stand or whatever. If you have, I mean, we all sin continuously. The different. The distinction is the practice. Mm -hmm. I take that to mean it's, it's an intentionality. Mm -hmm. If I continue to go through my life with an intentionality to sin as much as I can, that's practice of sinning, and that's that's impossible. I totally agree, and that's why I brought up the like. How we need to like really get out of the emotional, um, the emotional thoughts that we have wrapped up with the narrow way and the wide road. Yeah. Like it's still good to do that. I'm not saying that's wrong, but we've got to get like that foundation down. Like there are two ways, and if you start going this way, you'd never go that way again. It never happens. You might wander off this way, but you never go that way again. You don't get on the road and go, I'm going to, you know, because that's progress, right? That's the point of the illustration. The illustration is if I go down the road, I'm progressing down this road. That's like a practice. It's not like, you know, I mean, oh, no, no, no. I think that's a great point. But I'm just saying, like, I was adding to that. Like, that's why we have to, like, get that down, especially when we're explaining it to somebody else. Like, oh, my gosh. I don't have time to go into it, but how many Christians have you met who like are just like, I don't know about my faith, I've been sinning. And you're like, gosh, like which road are you on? Are you on the narrow road or the wide road? And they're like, well, the narrow road. It's like, then like, just keep going forward. It's okay. Like, geez, man, you're a sinner. You have to accept it. Um, uh, through, uh, looking at seven through eight, they talked about how so we've kind of established the problem. We've established what he's going to do, but we have this other problem. And the other problem is... So the first problem is sin. And sin is the personal enemy. Number one. Number one most wanted personal enemy. The internal foe. 
But we have an external foe as well, who he addresses next, and that, of course, is Satan. He is public enemy. Number one, not the band. And these both kind of connect together to, like we were saying, they have to go somewhere, they have to lead somewhere. Well, they lead to death. They lead. This stuff is found on the wide road that leads to destruction. The difference with the narrow road being, is there sin on the narrow road? No, because sin has been cleansed and forgiven for all of those who are on the narrow road. You don't see sin on the narrow road. It's been supernaturally, miraculously wiped clean because of Jesus. That's like the difference. So this is the problem. This is wide road to destruction stuff. Um, So the devil is a deceiver, like we were looking here. So we need to pursue righteousness. Jesus came, he dealt with sin, he rescued us, and now we need to continue on knowing that there's somebody now who's going to try to deceive us, which is like what we saw in the garden. The first thing he did was try to deceive us. Um, he says uh, in 3-7, se- a really important phrase. Does somebody want to read 3-7? Let no one deceive you. And they talk about in the book how this is a, uh, it's a present command, a present imperative. And that means that we are not in this autopilot state in our lives. He has saved us, he's taught us not to drown, whatever, I don't have to continue that illustration. But he's saved us, and he's made us uh, renewed, and now he's saying, but it's not over. Now I need you to have persistent vigilance. I need you, as I'm saying in this verse, um, little children command, let no one deceive you. That is a very huge command. Uh, I think for me reading this for the first time, uh, for the first time I really felt that command. It felt more like a, like a law to me, but now it's more like, hey, don't get deceived. What were you gonna say, Henry? Well, to prevent from being deceived, you have to know what the truth is before. You could be deceived and not know what the truth is, but sure. to prevent yourself from being deceived, you have to know what the truth is. I absolutely agree. And for a second here, I think he's taking a second because he says little children, right? Although he's directing most of this at that third group for a second, he's being like, okay, guys, churches in what we think is Ephesus, don't be deceived. And earlier we saw in chapter two, he said, I write to you because about those who are trying to deceive you. Um, but this is a command. I don't, does anyone feel that way as you live your life that you feel commanded to not be deceived? I kind of feel that from time to time. I think I could feel it more. But this kind of like feeling of like, whoa, 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 whoa what are you saying? I, I'm not going to buy that. Uh, I'm going to love you as I say this, but I'm, I'm not going to buy that. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. The word overcome is, is uh, of the sense, okay, it's not a passive term, it is overcome. I mean, there's a flood of people. It's like people in uh, Black Friday trying to get into the store. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're going to run over it. Yeah. The, uh, flood. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's like, don't be overcome by evil. Yes. Evil. Yeah. In that storm, they're going to try to deceive us doctrinally. They're going to try to think about Jesus wrongly. They're going to try to deceive us morally. They're going to try to get us to think, well, some people today are trying to, to just wipe morality off the page. But they're going to try, I don't think they'll succeed. Uh, but morally, they're going to get us to make the wrong decisions and be like, well, these are the right decisions. Um, and they're also, as we see in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, they're going to try to deceive us socially. They're going to get us to hate others, which I think all of us have been probably very tempted in the last few years with everything going on um, with COVID and uh, with the election, especially the election back in 2016. I think all of us probably had some temptation to hate instead of love, at least to dislike instead of love. Well, yeah. So they are trying to convince us to not do what he wants us to do. Are you well, I, I was going to say, you know, Paul talked about the brand studying, you know, and, and, you know, we're described as sheep. And if he worked with sheep, he realized how dumb they are. And uh, I don't think a guy can overstate that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so he really commands us not to be like sheep, to be concerning. You know, do not be, do not be deceived. I mean, mm -hmm. I think there's people out there that really want to be deceived. Yeah. Even with the True. evidence there, right? They make evil seem good. Yeah. Hey, here's the immediate benefit. Mm -hmm. Like the garden. Hey, you'll know you'll be just like God. Yeah. You'll be. If you eat this you'll be buddies with them. <laughs> like, here's the you'll be closer to him. Even though God said no. Yeah. But it's mixed in there. Like you'll be closer to him by not doing what he wants you to do. It's, it's, they can't quite pull it off. Um, verse seven. I don't know about you guys. I believe that this is maybe one of the most reassuring verses in all of the Bible. I mean, we have the stuff that's like. You'll never be taken out of his grasp. Jesus raised from the dead. But this is really beautiful. He takes the time to speak very directly to us and say, listen, whoever practiced righteousness, and he says it after saying, don't be deceived. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, all of us know that we became righteous because we were renewed. We were born again because of what Christ did. It was an inside change that now comes out as a practice of righteousness. Um, there's this great uh, somebody asked, I don't know if you guys know Jerry Seinfeld, somebody asked him if you were to start a comedy school what would you do? And he was like the first day I would tell them none of you were good enough and then I would make them leave and then whoever came back the second day I would teach and he does that because they're going to deal with so much garbage, so much rejection. There has to be something inside, deep inside, that makes them want to do comedy. Now for us, it's different. We were changed, we were picked out of the ocean, we were saved and changed from the inside out. And there's no way that we're not gonna practice righteousness. There's just no way. No matter how much rejection we face, we're gonna come back and be like, no, I, I have to do this. 
um, because it's within us. So we have to remember that faith doesn't produce works, but, or, or sorry, that works don't produce faith, but faith does produce works. What were you well, I was going to say, well, that's all the thing about deception is, you know, it always amazes me, uh, you know, how the sec- how secular people uh, go, wow, you know, that the pastor sinned. We can't believe a pastor sinned. Well, the, the biggest surprise to me, in all honesty, is that, that he did good. <laughs> Does it make sense? Absolutely. Because of the fact that we are sinners. The big surprise is that we do good. Mm-hmm. It should not be a surprise to anybody. Mm-hmm. No matter, even the Amish, you know, got that thing on, on you know, the Amish, they, did, they, they sin. You know, they, they killed somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that should not be a surprise to anybody. It should be just the opposite. Mm-hmm. I, you're speaking directly to my heart there. I have to try to not go off on an emotional tangent with that statement. <laughs> Verse 8 uh, says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is pretty straightforward. Satan, of course, means adversary. It means to oppose. And as we continue through the story, we have this great rescue mission. And then he teaches the people what to do to go forward. And then on top of that, to make the story even more glorious for God, we also have this epic enemy that he has to defeat. And um, how did uh, Jesus defeat Satan? I know the second coming hasn't come yet, but how did he defeat Satan? The cross. The cross. And what did the cross do? Because the problem is the works of the devil and the promise and the problem is people practicing sin. So how did he defeat him with the cross? Even though he's not like over, but he is defeated. Well, I'd say that he delivered from sin. Sure. And that's kind of like going into like it's kind of like Doolittle's raid. At Pearl Harbor, right. like we went, we identified where they were manufacturing the stuff and just took them out. And you kill the supply line, and then they can't do anything. And that's why Satan was so frustrated, must have been so frustrated when the cross happened. Um, because he's like, oh, like the one way that I get them, he's made a way for them not to need it anymore. What? Well, I mean, that, that's what he could hold. I mean, for the rest of Adam's life, he held over, Satan could hold over Adam's head. Is that, well, obviously, but let's, just, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the only sin that Adam ever did was eat of that blasted tree, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. You know, Satan goes, I got you. Just that one thing. Yeah. And, and uh, we know that's not, he sin more, but the point being is, once Satan, when you do that, once you do that one sin, mm-hmm. Satan's got you. So that's great, right? So that's how it's, it's, that's where Doolittle's raid illustration falls apart. Because they didn't just go in, Jesus didn't just go in and take out the supply. He wipes clean. Those, those who believe in him, it is wiped. It's over. Like, oh God, my sin. Just confess to me and repent. I'll forgive you. It's over. I'm done. Like, I have forgiven you. My son died a long time ago, like for you. It's good. Um, And of course, the story isn't, the story of sin isn't done yet. 
between this coming and the second coming. Um, there's the three P's that uh, deal with sin pretty well. The penalty, the power, and the presence. Have you guys heard these three P's? You know, when you're justified, you no longer face the penalty of sin. In sanctification, you learn to deal with the power of sin, not being overpowered by it. And then in glorification, when we see him face to face, the presence of sin will be gone forever. Although we still will see that smoke, but that's not sin. That's justice. (laughs) But so he's victorious because of the sin. And then finally... He came to demarcate, I like that word. He came to demarcate the children of God. Does anybody know what de- demarcate means? We're not sophisticated. <laughs> I'm not either, I had to look it up. He came to demarcate, to set the boundaries or limits of the children of God. Jesus came to fulfill the law and be like, here's the boundaries, here's the limits. You've already learned this, but let me make it very clear. Here's the boundaries, here's the limits. Um, and within that, so the false teachers of John's day, the false teachers of our day, they will teach that it is possible to be righteous without doing the right thing. Um, and what does God's word say about that? No. You can't do the right, you can't be righteous and do the wrong thing. That's not possible. Um, and practice doing the wrong thing. Well, you could even say that, like, was that a righteous act? No, you did the wrong thing. It was wrong. Well, AK, I, I would view the gambling, gambling and the people that really make alcohol, you know? I mean, they, they, they love to, you know, over there, well, think of all the help we do for the public school. You know, all that lottery money, you know, man, the, the, the stuff we do with the lottery money, it goes to public schools, you know, isn't that good? Mm-hmm. What really happens is the legislature just gives less. <laughs> but the point, my point being, is, yeah. the same money. right? The point being is, you, you can't, but yeah, just because you're doing evil, you're encouraging people to get drunk, and you're pushing that, yeah. peddling that stuff, and then going back. Well, you know, we, you know, we help. Uh, you know, we give money to, uh, you know, uh, mothers against drunk and driving or something. Yeah. whatever they'd like to do. Oh my gosh, like every actor in the world is part of some charity and they're usually not the greatest people. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just what they do. It's like, oh, there's a lot of people looking at me? Okay, I'll do this nice thing over here. I'm good, right? No, you do a ton of stuff that's wrong and you never address it. Um, we have to accept, if we look at 3.9, somebody want to read 9, verse 9? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's sin abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This, of course, is coming from John, the guy who wrote John 3. Um, the big discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. We have to accept too. So we're looking at all these different things. The Holy Spirit's within. Jesus has rescued you out. He's taught you what to do. You're supposed to be like him. Here's another illustration that helps us see that if I'm practicing sin, I'm not a Christian. I was born again. When I was saved, I was reborn, regenerated. Uh, there's a 2 Corinthians 5.17, close to the other verse. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That is a truth that must be accepted. Uh, the New Bible Dictionary for Regeneration has got a great definition. 
So regeneration for the New Bible Dictionary. A drastic act on fallen human nature by the Holy Spirit, leading to a change in the person's whole outlook. He can now be described as a new man who seeks, finds, and follows God in Christ. I think that's a really good um, definition. You know, I was just saying about this, you know, one of the ultimate penalties I think Christians can do, uh, and of course we aren't, was maybe as obvious of, of uh, that in our society today, but you know, Ananias and Sapphira when they yeah. lied against the Holy Spirit. And then Paul writes about that too. He says, some of you have fallen asleep. Hmm. In other words, you've died because, you know, you continued in sin and God took you home. He said, mm-hmm. no, no, this is not good. This is not good. And it, it's, yeah. not, it's not that they lost their salvation. Is the, the penalty that they paid was physical death. Oh, okay, yeah. So that's, that's my point. Yeah. This, it's one of these things, I mean, this is like so obvious to, to us who are Christians, but the world is so blind to it. So I'm thinking of, it's been in the news, been in the news for the last 50 years or whatever, abortion, <laughs> and how you have leaders who are saying, you know, so the Catholic Church is saying, you can't be a Catholic and support abortion. Oh, we support abortion because we, you know, whatever reason, because of the woman, the health of the woman, whatever. But I mean, it's so plain that you cannot be a child, you can't be walking with God and promoting this as a practice. Now, are there some, are there some women who are Christian in a moment of weakness, you know, just desperation that have gotten abortion? Probably. I'm sure there are, I mean, we know there are women that Mm-hmm. abortion later became safe. You know, it's just, we're not talking about weakness here. We're talking about promoting or practicing or heralding as this is something that, and it's it's like so obvious, this is of Satan. Right. And you, this is not of God. I mean, there's clear right. demarcation or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I think this is something the world, the world can't really understand. Yeah, yeah, and that. But well, I think that's why it's good that we're given so many illustrations. If somebody wants to talk about this, we have so many, and they're all true. It's amazing. Like even just today, we've already said so many of them, Um, and it's so beautiful that the Bible gives us the means to explain it, um, so that God can you know help them understand. Hopefully, Um, we can't be who we once were. It's not possible. This. Becoming a Christian thing is not a subtle thing. It's a huge thing. It's a huge difference. I know that for some of us, it might not look that way, maybe when we became Christians, but I think as time goes by, it's, it might be like, but everything did change, though. You know, it's like, it's not a subtle situation. Um, when we also look at verse 9, it also talks about how it's not just about being a new birth. He's also telling us that since we're God's children... We can't practice sin. And I'll just take a second to say, I love the fact that he uses the illustration of children and being reborn. Because if you're reborn and you're a child, you have to learn to walk. You have to learn to eat. You have to learn to do all of these things. And as you do that, that's a great illustration for us because we're still able to sin. Sin that's forgiven and wiped clean, but we're still able to sin. And the, the great illustration for that is a child learning to walk, stumbling, 
um, getting better, learning better about how the path works, how to not wander off the path, how to stay close to dad, can I trust dad, all these different things. But they don't practice sin. And I think that there's a huge difference between a habit and a practice. We don't have time to talk about it, but basically, I had habits in my life, as I'm sure that you did, things that I did again and again and again, right? And what I've found with a lot of Christians is that with their habits, they come to a breaking point. Like I knew one girl who was having the habit of drugs, and then one day it came where she was at a party and there was a line of coke in front of her. And she said, I can't do this. There was a breaking point. At a certain point, God comes in and says, this is, was going to be a habit that was going to become a practice, and I'm not going to allow that to be a thing. You're going to stay my kid. It's not going to happen. You know? Whereas before all of us were saved, we were all practicing sin. We were picking sins, and we were getting better at sins, and we we're particularly getting better at sins because we had no idea how to not do them. So, of course, we were going to get better at them. I think that's a great point. And God's made it very clear in his word that we are not robots, that we're very different. So we're going to have different weaknesses. But I will also say that I would also add, and I know you already know this, but on top of those weaknesses, we also do have those times as Christians where we intentionally go against what God wants. Where I say, not tonight, I'm going to do it the way I want. I know it's wrong. I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. And then, but he doesn't care. Like, because he has died for this sin already. He just begs you to confess and repent and come back to him because the, the work has been done. Yeah. Um, I would say the intention is like Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which makes it a practice. You know? yeah. yeah. So, but when, I mean, when we do get to that point where we do that specific sin, we do need to be very careful because yeah. thinking that way can very quickly become some kind of rhythm and then you could be like was i ever saved this is bad and then last we have to end verse 10 he does very authoritatively just sums it all up somebody want to read verse 10 this is how we know who the children of god are and who the children of the devil are anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of god nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So great. Um, and I really like these last two points because he does a fantastic job of summarizing it, um, but he kind of creates this test for like what it means to be, like, if you know if you're a Christian. And two of the questions, he's asking two questions in this test. And the questions are, do you do what is right? 
and do you love others? Which are questions I, of course, want you to ask yourself throughout the week. But these are two questions that he asked a very specific person, if you remember. Well, he commanded them more so. Do what is right and love others. And this person failed the second command. Do you remember who this person was? Hmm. Yeah, right? That's so beautiful. It's so cool that uh, how it comes around back to that. He's like, do you follow the commands? He's like, since I was young. It's like, then sell all you have, give to the poor. <laughs> back I don't want to do that. Um, I just think, thought it was cool that we have a direct illustration of what John is talking about at the end. You're going to do what's right, and you're going to love others. Well... How, is it easy to separate the two? Yeah, look at the rich young ruler. He had every reason to love others. He was rich, and he chose to not do it anyway. Right, and it wasn't a command that God wants us to get rid of all our riches. It was, the point was there, like he brought out, is the fact that he loved his riches. Well, he wants them to follow the Shema. Yeah. You know, whether he's rich or not, God first, others me last and he was like could you do that he's like i can't even fathom doing that i don't i can't like <laughs> i can't do that it's this is my i cultivated this this is my he doesn't even realize it's not even his it's right. not even his stuff so right it's ultimately his right yeah so we're supposed to love others period uh, regardless of what people have done to us we're supposed to love others period so if we I hope all of us are walking away today knowing that we are, you know, those who practice righteousness and are righteous like Jesus. We're not walking away the other way. Um, I hope that you're walking away not being in doubt. Like a lot of, for some reason, a lot of Christians walk away from this passage very doubtful. And I don't understand why verse 7 is such a release. Um, But hopefully you're walking away with that. And yeah, looking forward to next week. Mm -hmm.